Well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Let me start by asking, have you ever had one of those days where everything just comes together and you get up and you're feeling good, you don't have the, the normal aches and pains and and it just, it just seems to come together and, and things just go your way. You ever have any one of the, anyone ever have those days? Yes. This isn't one of them. <laughs> For those of you who sit through my sermons, <clears throat> you know that when I'm called on, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> this isn't one of them. <clears throat> when I'm called on to preach, I often preach about something I considered or encountered in my daily Bible reading. And today is no different from that. I came to read Psalm 103 just days after the suicides of two celebrities, fashion designer Kate Spade and celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain. Both were well-known in their respective areas. And although, to be real, I hadn't heard of Kate Spade until she was the subject of an answer on a game show in Jeopardy just a few days before, it was, it was amazing to hear of, hear of her suicide. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, wow. Their suicides were just three days apart, and they caused me to reflect on people who commit suicide and the circumstances that led them to do that. Now, to be sure, in my law enforcement career, I've handled a lot of suicide calls. Some that were discovered after a period of time had passed, some that were discovered just shortly after the suicide occurred, and even one where I was present on scene when the suicide happened. And I sadly confess that through all those cases, I, I built up a protective layer, like many police officers, to, to keep the pain out. You know, like a lot of cops, I developed a, and if you know me, a, a somewhat twisted sense of humor under the philosophy of, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And please understand that it's not because I didn't have compassion. But in reality, my walk with the Lord at the time was not what it is today and not what it is I hope it will be next month or next year. And so as I read Psalm 103, I couldn't help but consider what might have led these two wealthy celebrities to end their lives. Neither had an incurable illness. They had fame and fortune, the likes of which most, if not all of us, will not experience. But something caused them to despair of life. Many of us know this despair and grief. The passing of a loved one, the loss of a job, the ending of a relationship, a lingering or even perhaps terminal illness, or an injury that results in a permanent disability. I haven't been immune to that. I felt the loss of a father, a brother and two cousins over the period of one year. I've lost a job. I've worried about finances. Sometimes despair comes as a result of our own sinful behavior. I've regretted things I've said or done. And to be honest, not a day goes by that I'm not haunted by something in my past, wishing I could take a mulligan or a do-over. I've actually prayed that God would cause someone to forget something I said or did and especially where it impacted my testimony for Christ. Now, of course, I'm forgiven in Christ, and I praise God for that. I am forgiven in Christ. 
But nonetheless, there are times when each of us feel despair. David, when he wrote Psalm 103, no doubt felt some despair. It could have been because he was weakened in his old age and he wasn't as vigorous and dynamic as he once was. It could have been because he saw the results of sin in his life and in others. We don't know what the particular impetus was as he wrote this psalm. We do know that the words he penned called for us to remember God's love and his goodness. He wrote to remind himself of the benefits of God's love. Today, I want to look at two considerations from this psalm, which are bracketed by two commands. So our considerations are, God's love is steadfast. God's love is steadfast. And the other is, God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. And we have two commands. The two commands are, don't forget. Don't forget. And the other one is, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So let's look at command number one. Don't forget. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David knew disappointment and despair. He'd been anointed Israel's future king by the prophet Samuel. He was a shepherd and a slayer of lions and bears and of a giant warrior. He married the king's daughter. He played the harp in the court of the king. And yet the same king sought to kill him because he was viewed as a threat. More than once he fled for his life after narrowly avoiding a spear thrown at him by the king. Upon hearing from his best friend Jonathan that the king intended to kill David, he fled not knowing if he would ever see Jonathan again. But David not only lost a friend, he also lost a wife when the king gave her to another man. This future king of Israel spent years as a fugitive, hiding in caves, scrounging for food, dodging his enemies. But that wasn't all of David's sad experiences. One of his sons raped one of his daughters, and another son killed that one in retribution. That same son who killed the one in retribution rebelled against David and tried to install himself as king in David's place. And David lived to see that son's death. And of course, who could forget David's sin with Bathsheba? Adultery and murder of her husband. This resulted in the death of his newborn son. See, David had a lot to look back on in despair. A lot to regret. He knew he was forgiven. If you haven't read Psalm 51, read that. And understand the, the magnitude of David's recognition of his sin. And yet, his understanding of the forgiveness of God. But here in Psalm 103, David has to remind himself to bless God and not to forget all that God has done. And first and foremost is the forgiveness of sin. Of all the demonstrations of God's love, this is the greatest. 
See, we are by nature rebellious to the one who created us. We would not seek him or his ways. And in fact, by default, we want nothing to do with God. We want to run the show ourselves. And we think we know better than God. But what did God do? He sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for the sins we committed, something we couldn't do ourselves. And he did this for his enemies. And by this, he has forgiven our sin, our past sin, our present sin, and our future sins. And I ask you today, do you feel the accusations of the devil? Is Satan whispering in your ear the sins that you've committed, reminding you of your unworthiness, reminding you of your inability to match up to God's perfection? He whispers in my ear. Does he whisper in yours? Know that Satan stands accusing you before God, but also know that Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, is indeed interceding for you. Where Satan whispers, Jesus counters and says, but I died for that sin. He's forgiven. But I died for that sin. He's forgiven. But I died for that sin. He's forgiven. When you feel the despair of your past sins, you can rely on this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you are no longer condemned for your sins. Let Satan accuse away. It's all for nothing. Jesus paid that penalty. As David noted, likewise, he heals our diseases. Disease and suffering weren't in the original plan. They weren't a part of creation of the world. Everything was perfect and good. Disease and death and suffering came about as a result of man's rebellion. And because of that, creation was subject to futility. Jesus, when he came, he healed the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf while he was here on earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Peter says, it is by the wounds of Jesus you are healed And the disease of sin is eradicated. This is what David points to. Forget not his benefits. He heals our diseases. And in verse 4, we read that God redeems your life from the pit. And the pit refers to destruction. Jesus told his disciples not to fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You may feel that those around you are seeking to harm you. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe even harm your reputation. But no matter what they do or what they try to do, they cannot destroy you. Stand firm in your faith, even in the midst of despair, because you fear the one who has power over life and death. Paul wrote, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, contrary to the pit, David writes that God crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. While we may face trials and testing in this life, be assured if you remain steadfast, you will receive the crown of life. Unless you worry about faltering, remember that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand and that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing that is created, not even you, if you belong to Christ, can separate you from his love. And in verse 5, we read that God who satisfies us with good. Now, there's a difference between being sated and being satisfied. To be sated means to be full from indulgence. Parents can indulge the appetites of their children with candy and, and other unhealthy food. In the desert, the Israelites were not satisfied with manna. They demanded meat. So God said he would give them quail, so much that it would be coming out of their nostrils and become loathsome to them. Being sated does not mean that your needs are satisfied. I'm sorry, it means that your wants are satisfied. Israel based their satisfaction on their desires, not, what God, not that God had provided for them. This was the same God who kept their clothes and their sandals from being worn out from 40 years of walking in the desert. How many of you have clothes that you've worn day in and day out for 40 years that aren't worn out? But here God says, 40 years walking in the hot, dry, arid desert, wandering from place to place, their sandals didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. This is a God who provided for their needs. In Ecclesiastes, we find examples of those who are not satisfied with money or riches or even with children because their indulgences aren't meant. But God satisfies by giving you what you need and not necessarily what you want. See, when the Samaritan woman at the well wanted water, Jesus told her that whoever drank of that water would be thirsty again. But Jesus said that he offers water that springs up into a well of eternal life. The proverb tells us the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. See, when we turn needs into wants, or we, I'm sorry, if we turn wants into needs, then we're never satisfied because we want more and more and more. But think about this. Jesus rightly pointed out that if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God gives us the good things in life. He gives us the things we need, not the things we want. And sometimes that means testing. Sometimes that means trials. Sometimes that means challenges and disappointments that are meant to grow us, to strengthen us in our faith of Christ. I ask you today, are you satisfied with Jesus? Does he bring joy to your life? Or do you seek more? Do you seek more than the forgiveness of your sins? Do you seek more than the good provision that God has given you? Do you seek more in this life rather than placing your hope in the next? 
When your wants overwhelm you and you feel that you don't have what you think you need, do you remember all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ? And then we read that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now think about eagles, our, our national symbol. They're majestic birds. They're known for living in high cliffs and for soaring in the sky. Perhaps you despair from all the wickedness that's done around you. Perhaps you despair from the wickedness that has been done to you. But brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When you are faint, God gives you power. When you are weak, he gives you strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I made the little joke this morning about you ever have one of those days when everything goes right and this isn't one of those? There's a, a, a sense that sometimes you're already weary when you start out. The things have already hit you. But yet at the same time, it is God who picks you up and carries you along. It is God who gives you the ability to continue. And to continue not only just plodding along, but to pick up your pace if you recall that God has saved you in Jesus Christ. It is he who gives you the strength to live your testimony. When you're tired, when you feel put down, when you feel injured, when you're sick. As Paul wrote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I tell you, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Don't try to do it on your own strength. He is much stronger than you. Don't try and do it on your own wisdom. He is wiser than you. When you feel at the end of your rope, when life is closing in around you, remember that God's grace is sufficient for you. For his power is perfected in what? Weakness. God's power is demonstrated in your weakness. Rejoice for that. For you are being given the opportunity to show others the power of God. When you strive when it's difficult, when you strive when you're disappointed, when you strive when you're in despair, you show God's strength to others around you. And you show God's strength to yourself. When you are in despair and do not think you can go on another minute, another moment, remember God. Don't forget the benefits of his love. Well, then we come to consideration number one. <clears throat> God's love is steadfast. Listen as and follow along as I, I read verses 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
Some people are despondent because they sense that there's no justice, either in the world as a whole or for them personally. Perhaps they've been wrongfully accused of something. Perhaps their reputations are being attacked. Friends turn on them. People gossip. Perhaps they're victims of an offense and see the predators escape prosecution. Perhaps they feel no one believes you. I will tell you as a former child sexual assault investigator, this weighs heavily on child victims. They feel that people won't believe them. They're told that it's their fault and they feel victimized over and over and over again. You know, man's justice is neither swift nor sure. We like to think it is, but it is not. We see people exploited in many countries around the world. We see tyrants and despots oppress their people. We see our brothers and sisters in Christ harassed and jailed and tortured and killed. You know that Israel was no better? Justice for the poor is important to the Lord. But Israel's priests and rulers were just as guilty of injustice as governments today are. Many prophets called them out for that. But David knew that God's justice is perfect. He remembers God's deliverance of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians. Now think about it. If there was ever a time for despair, this was it for Israel. After coming to Egypt at a time of famine, there were 70 people. Only 70 came into Egypt. And they grew so large that they were viewed as a threat by the Egyptians. They numbered the hundreds of thousands when they left. And this was just over 400 years. So the Egyptians sent them to heavy labor. God told Abraham that they would be oppressed for 400 years. They were subjected to slavery and hard labor for 400 years. They groaned and cried out to God for help. And God delivered them. And you know the story of the 10 plagues and the final judgment of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. When Moses asked to know God's ways and his presence, he asked God's, way, or God's presence to accompany Israel. God granted Moses' request. And he made a covenant with Israel and promised to show them great things. And he did. They crossed over the river Jordan on dry land. The walls of Jericho fell after they just marched around it for seven days and blew horns. God gave them triumph over their enemies and settled them in the land he had promised to give them. You can read that in Joshua. They settled in the land that God had promised. He fulfilled his promise to them. But despite this, they turned on God. While they were in the desert, they grumbled and complained. When God had told them to go ahead and enter the land he had given them, they refused. They said they were scared. The people are big. We're like little grasshoppers in their face. God threatened to destroy the nation and make a new nation from Moses. But in his grace and mercy, he spared Israel. And he has always spared a remnant of Israel through the Babylonian exile, through the Nazi holocaust. He has always spared a remnant of his chosen people. And here is the reason David tells us, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you come away with nothing else from this sermon this morning, come away with knowing who God is. He told Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, 
And listen as I read that to you. Moses is asked to see God's glory. Moses is on the hill. And in verse 6 it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgetting iniquity or forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Let me note here that this is how God describes himself to his creation. This is how he describes himself to us. You know, all too many, all too often people describe or want to cast God in their own terms. How often have you heard someone say this? I can't believe in a God who fill in the blank. I can't believe or my God is fill in the blank. I think God is fill in the blank. There can be all kinds of things. I can't believe in a God who would allow sickness and death. My God is one who only loves, who never condemns. I think God is in all of us. How many times have you heard people say this? And I truly believe that that is why there is so much despair and despondency in the world today. People do not know who God is. The God they call or the God they craft in their sinful minds and hearts eventually lets them down. A God of our design will, in the end, always let us down. But praise to God, we don't have to figure out who he is. He tells us. We just have to believe. It's right there. We just have to believe. He doesn't leave us in the dark. Christians, we need to tell others who God really is if we want to rescue them from despair. We need to take them to Jesus. Now, I could spend several sermons just speaking on each of the attributes David mentions, but today I want to point to God's love because there is a message for those in despair, to those who feel desperate with no sign of relief from their pain, to those who feel unloved or maybe unworthy of love. You are loved by God in a way that even today we struggle to imagine or comprehend. The term steadfast love is complex. One dictionary describes a Hebrew word as one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I can only try to give you some sense of what the word is in its magnitude. There's three components to the term, strength, steadfastness, and love. And all three need to be considered together. If you only consider one aspect or only two, you're separating out the full meaning of steadfast love. God's steadfast love is one that is shared between a stronger party, God, and a weaker one, us. It's a generous love. We know that God generously gives to all without reproach. It is one we look to for protection and blessing, but we're not entitled to it. It's an unwavering love based on God's commitment and promise, and we know that God is faithful. It is up to God to determine how best to show his love. He determines and knows what is best. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
His ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And steadfast love implies a personal involvement. It is a love that involves action. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And God doesn't just have steadfast love. He abounds in steadfast love. David goes on to explain what these attributes of God looks like. In verse 9 and 10, we read, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, note here that David does not say that God does not get angry. Too many times, people like to focus on God's love to the exclusion of God's wrath and justice. One former pastor wrote a book implying that God loves trumps everything else including his wrath, including his justice. And he's just wrong. It's just not true. God's wrath is real and to be feared. In case you doubt it, just read through the book of Revelation where God's wrath is poured out on this creation. God's wrath is mentioned throughout and it's not pretty. Read it and understand what God's wrath will look like. And it is coming. And make no mistake, God hates sin and he punishes it without exception. There is no sin that will not be accounted for. Either we account for it personally and pay the penalty ourselves, or, it was, or that penalty was paid by Jesus. Not one sin is ignored. And that is justice. And rather than saying that God does not get angry, David tells us that his anger will not last forever. And this is because his wrath is satisfied. And you know in whom it is satisfied, in Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. So yes, God will not be angry forever. Now don't mistake the connection between God not being angry forever and his steadfast love. His love for us is in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Jesus is not the Lord of your life, if you've not placed your faith and trust in him, then God will remain angry with you forever. And if you despair here on earth, just think it's nothing compared to the despair and separation from God you will feel in hell for all eternity. Verses 11 through 13 read, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, the fear David talks about is more than just mere trembling. We all experience fear. Sometimes when a car comes too close and you know, our hearts beat and, and, and we're shaking. When someone threatens us with violence. When we're worried about going in and getting a bad job review or maybe losing a job or someone's mad at us or we're worried what people think. But this is more than that. It's a reverent fear. To revere something is to give it deferential honor. To regard it as worthy of great honor. To fear something or someone is to give it respect. Now, we can revere many things or many people. 
Sometimes we revere it appropriately. We can revere the actions of those who risk their lives for others. We can revere the principles of justice and mercy. Sometimes we revere inappropriately. We worship science over him who created the science. We worship possessions over him who gave us the possessions. Sometimes we worship teachers over him whose words they teach. Yet there is today a loss of reverence among people. The greatest example of that is that life is no longer revered. We don't revere the life of the unborn, and we don't revere the life of the aged or terminally ill. It's okay to deprive them of life. We don't revere life. The reverence we're talking about here goes beyond all that. To fear God is to revere him above all else, to believe him, to seek to please him. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Revering God as our creator, acknowledging our allegiance to him above all else, believing him. You cannot believe God if you don't believe in Jesus, who said, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, not in me, but in him who sent me. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, we all deserve punishment for our sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the good news is that even though we're condemned to death, and the wages of our sin is death. God's steadfast love, his mercy, his compassion are given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, and that is the good news. Despair is turned to hope. We don't have to despair about our sins. We don't have to despair about condemnation. There is hope in Christ. Well, our second consideration is God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. Listen as I read verses 15 to 19. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of God is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Now you know from reading other Psalms of David that the very hairs in our head are numbered. God has ordained the number of our days that we would live on earth even before there was one of them. God knows our very thoughts, not just our actions, but what we're thinking, our motives, our intents. He knows us intimately. He knows you intimately. 
each and every one of you. He knows intimately. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you thought yesterday. He knows what you'll think tomorrow. You can't hide from God. David said as much. He made us. He knows everything about us. And we know from Genesis how God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And when God pronounced the curse on mankind following Adam's sin, he said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now think about dust for a minute. Now we generally don't like dust. When we describe something as dusty, we're not paying it a compliment. Something that is dusty is considered old or unused or dirty. And it's something we try to get rid of by wiping with cloths or swiffering. When the disciples were told that as they left the town, they did not receive them, they were told to shake the dust from their feet as a testimony against the town. Try to grab a handful of dust and make something of it. You can't. You see, it doesn't hold together unless there's something there to bind the particles, to make them adhere to other dust particles, they're just not going to hold together. Dust is just going to fall apart. Try making something. It doesn't work. Blow on that same handful of dust, and it scatters everywhere. If you go into a room, a dark room, and you shine a light, or you see a ray of sunlight come into a room, you can see all the little dust particles floating in the air. Wave your hand through them. Or blow on it. Run some air through it. And they all scatter. It's gone. See, Jesus, I'm sorry, James summed it up rightly when he said, and he compared us to mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Just like the dust in the air that we see. Here for a little time and then gone, out of sight. Likewise, think of grass and flowers in a field or a mountain. They're here today. They're green and they're beautiful. But they don't last forever. Winds pass over the field, the grass dries up, the flowers wilt. They turn brown and they die. And in the place there once were flowers, there's nothing. Just look around the hills around us here in Hollister. Our beautiful green hills in the summer turn brown. The wind comes across them, the heat beats down, and everything's gone. Our lives are like that. The winds of time pass over each of us, and then we're gone. Solomon says that we're not remembered. Generations will come and go. And unless we teach others about someone like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, even these would not be remembered. We don't remember people that were here, from, here in America two generations ago. The guy who was plowing his field in Connecticut. The guy who was coming across the Oregon Trail. There's no remembrance Unless someone teaches about someone, we don't remember people before us. Our lives are a mist. But despite that, I think many of us should be nicknamed Sonny because we think the world revolves around us. But we're dust and grass and flowers. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Now hear me. If we are so temporary, then so are our trials, our tribulations, and our pain. None of these can outlast us. A pain does not outlast a life. It's gone. But what is not temporary is the eternal love of God. Verse 17 says, but the steadfast love of God is from everlasting to everlasting. 
God's love is from eternity past to eternity future. Now, I can grasp eternity future. I can guess that time goes on. I can, I can, I can imagine that. You know what I have trouble understanding? I can't grasp eternity past. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around that where there's no beginning. You know, we're a finite people. We live in a here and now. We know when something starts. We live in a world that had an origin. So for us, everything has an origin, except God. There was no origin for God. I, 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 I can't get that. But I'm not surprised at that, because God is eternal. He's infinite. I, I, I can't grasp a God of that magnitude. And if a God of that magnitude exists, how can I grasp the magnitude of his steadfast love? That's why I say we can't imagine and we, 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 we can't comprehend this. But we believe it. We know it's there. God does not have an origin. He was always, is always, and always will be God. There was no time he did not exist. I may not wrap my head around it, but I believe it. If God does not have an origin, neither does his love. If God is eternal, so is his love. And this means that he will never change his mind or cast us out. And this, brothers and sisters, is real security. God loves us today. He will love us tomorrow. He will love us into eternity. You need not fear losing your salvation. You need not fear that he will cast you out. He will always love us. And the benefits of his love will always be ours. But no, once again, that David is clear to say that this love is shown to those who fear him and keep his commandments. See, a tree is known by its fruit. Healthy trees bear good fruit, and diseased trees bear bad fruit. The God who heals your diseases from verse 3 enables you to bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. If you know God's precepts but refuse to keep them, you are not bearing good fruit. And I submit it might be time to question your salvation. As Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And as Pastor John so aptly reminds us with the words of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and 29, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. David reminds us in verse 19 that God rules over all. And it's to him we owe our allegiance and our obedience. Which leads us to the second command found in this psalm. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Follow along as I read verses 20 to 22. Bless the Lord, O, his, o you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless his... Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. See, God is worthy to be praised. And as I read these verses, I think again of revelation and the majesty and praise and worship at God's throne by the Apostle John. He observed this going on. And listen as I, I read from Revelation that talks about this. Listen to Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. When I read those verses from Psalm 102, this is what comes to mind. All creation rising up and praising God. There is no despair in that. There is no despondency. There is joy in praising the God who is worthy to be praised. As David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? Well, I recently read an article that noted that those who meditated in the morning were less likely to be depressed during the day. And you know, this makes sense as the course of our days can often be determined by our attitude going into them. But I do think that what we meditate on is important. Or we can meditate on useless platitudes and mantras and things that people say. You know, in the 60s, they talked about sitting and contemplating your navel. Okay. <laughs> or we can meditate on the rich word of God with its truths and its precepts that lead to life. When you wake let your thoughts first be on the blessing the Lord and remembering who he is and all that he has done, remembering his benefits. Start your day waking up and thanking God for what he's done for you. Now, perhaps today you're feeling anxious or depressed or you're despairing of some situation in life. Know that you're not alone. Jesus, who came to earth taking the form of a man, knows how you feel. He died for your sins so that you may benefit from God's love. Meditate on this in other psalms and passages of scripture. Remember who God is and what he has done. Remember what he has done for you. Remember that your present trial is only temporary compared to the eternal joy you will find in the presence of your Savior. Analogy I use is like if you go to the beach in Santa Cruz. You know, you, you take the drive over the hill and you're in traffic. Unless you leave early, you're in traffic. And it's hot. And you're beat down. Tempers flare. Patience goes away. If you got kids, you tell them not to fight in the back. And all you can think about is getting to that beach because you know that when you get there, you're going to see the waves and the shore and you're going to have rest. You see, the drive is Temporary. But the joy you have when you get to the destination is what you look forward to. It's the same way in life. Sometimes the drive is hard. Sometimes it's painful. But the joy that we have for eternity gives us hope knowing that this is temporary. This is just that miserable drive to the beach. Perhaps you know someone who might be feeling unloved who might be feeling irreparably damaged because of his sin or the sin of someone else, who might be in despair because of a present condition or situation. Share Christ with him. Tell him about God's steadfast and eternal love. It is the greatest kindness you can show that person. 
Now, perhaps today you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't know, you cannot count on the benefits of God's eternal love. And I urge you to consider Christ. He died for your sins, to redeem you from the pit, to spare you from the wrath of God. Don't leave here today without talking to Pastor Steve or to me or one of our deacons or to our worship leader, Darren. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that when we suffer anxiety, when we suffer depression, when we suffer despair, the best thing to do, what David says, is bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we look to you. Lord, we know days of despair. We know disappointment. We know struggles and trials. Jesus said we would face these. Father, he told us we would face these because of our faith. But Father, help us to remember the benefits of your love. Help us to remember all that you've done for us. Help us to remember that this is temporary that you have forgiven our sins as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are. You've put our transgressions aside so that we may have that eternal rest. We may have the hope of joy despite what we temporarily face here on earth because the short years that we hear on earth are nothing compared to an eternity, a time without end in the presence of our Savior. Father, I pray for everyone here Father, I pray for everyone that hears this. They turn their hearts to Jesus, Father, in times when they're feeling low, in times that they feel there is no hope, but to know that there is hope in Christ. Father, for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior, I, I pray that you cause them to seek, cause them to turn, cause them to come to know salvation in his name, in his name alone. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We cannot be saved by works. We cannot be saved by logic. We cannot be saved by, <coughs> by magical thinking. Father, we can only be saved by faith in Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing for everyone here, Father. Watch over them, guide them, hold them close. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>